fighting words from North Korea today, Thursday, March 7th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. North Korea threatens the United States with a preemptive nuclear strike, but this former top U.S. diplomat isn't ready to press the panic button. Being North Korea is to say one thing on Tuesday and forget you said it on Wednesday. Also, Venezuela prepares to say a final goodbye to Hugo Chavez. We'll hear about the late president's legacy in Latin America. And later, a Kenyan marathon champion runs a different sort of race and wins a seat in parliament. Wesley Career says he literally ran on election day. Even the morning of the election, I ran uh, with my voting card. I went and bought it, and then I went for my long run after that. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. Hi, Marco Werman. This is The World. Not to worry, the White House said today that the U.S. is fully capable of protecting itself from a North Korean missile attack. The regime in Pyongyang is threatening a preemptive nuclear strike on the United States. The threat was issued ahead of a United Nations Security Council meeting, which adopted new sanctions against North Korea's nuclear weapons program. It's all a bit surreal. In fact, it's hard to think of another country right now that's fodder for both late-night comedy skits and stone-faced U.N. Security Council meetings. To help us assess the threat is Ambassador Chris Hill, the former chief U.S. negotiator with North Korea. Ambassador Hill, there's always an element of theater, as you know, with North Korea. Some might even say a clownish quality, but a threat of a nuclear attack isn't a joke. How seriously should we take all this? Well, um, as you correctly point out, the North Koreans have said rather intemperate things before, but threatening a preemptive nuclear attack uh, does speak to a kind of heightened rhetoric that I think we should pay attention to. Now, mind you, I don't think North Korea has any such capabilities, but I think it does speak to a uh, regime that is increasingly under pressure and I think increasingly difficult to deal with. Obviously, one of the big factors that has happened in recent weeks is the fact that as we kind of monitor events in China, we can see that uh, lo and behold, the Chinese are getting a little tired of their little friends. And North Korea is also angry reportedly at U.S. plans for a big military exercise next week and has threatened to scrap the 1953 armistice that ended the Korean War and attack if the exercises go ahead on Monday. Uh, Do you think U.S. forces in East Asia will be going on alert? Uh, I am sure that our forces will be on the alert status they need to be on. Uh, With respect to our our annual exercises, this is a favorite hardy perennial uh, of the North Koreans. Um, Threatening, however, to abrogate the 1953 armistice is, uh, is a bit of a new one. So again, I think it has to be seen in the context of this kind of heightened rhetoric a kind of different style of, uh, of propaganda. I think those who thought that somehow the uh, regime of Kim Jong-un was going to be a kinder, gentler uh, North Korean regime uh, really need to think again on that point. So uh, assuming Kim Jong-un is bluffing, what could he possibly be hoping to get out of this? 
Well, being North Korean is to say one thing on Tuesday and forget you said it on Wednesday. So, you know, I wouldn't read too much into a daily propaganda burst. Nonetheless, we can see this as part of an overall pattern of being extremely belligerent in, in tone. I think from a North Korean perspective, they see their little guy as really kind of standing up and making his, uh, his position heard. That said, again, I don't think the Chinese feel this is particularly good for business or good for their future in the world. And I think the North Koreans have kind of miscalculated with respect to Chinese attitudes. You know, Ambassador, we just saw Dennis Rodman take that surreal, unofficial trip to North Korea. He met with Kim Jong-un, declaring him a friend for life. Before that, Bill Richardson and Eric Schmidt from Google, also unofficial. Is there a lesson here about heightened expectations from these private uh, and freelance diplomatic trips? I hate to talk about Dennis Rodman and uh, Bill Richardson and Eric Schmidt in the same breath, but it's hard not to because uh, what they have done is essentially go to the uh, regime and play a role in, in how this regime perceives itself and perceives its uh, its uh, reputation in the world. It is uh, kind of hard to take this stuff uh, seriously. Uh, I've always felt that it's um, it's a positive thing to kind of get in their faces and tell them that this kind of behavior on their part is simply unacceptable. But I'm not sure that any of these individuals have done that. And so the consequence of their visit, I cannot assess in any positive terms. Ambassador Chris Hill, former chief U.S. negotiator with North Korea and current dean of the Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. Thank you for your time. Thank you. North Korea doesn't have many friends in the international community, and this week the regime lost one of them when Venezuela's Hugo Chavez died. One thing that united Chavez with the leaders in Pyongyang was the frequent use of anti-American rhetoric. The Venezuelan leader used it throughout his 14 years in power to rally others in Latin America against U.S. policies. Now with Chavez about to be buried, it's unclear how his passing will affect the region. Reporter John Otis has covered Chavez in Latin America for years. He joins me now from Bogota. John, let's kind of take a swing through Latin America and canvas uh, the uh, Chavez influence. Brazil's president Dilma Rousseff called Chavez a great Latin American. Although in recent years, Brazil and Venezuela went about running their economies and dealing with poverty in very different ways. So what did President Rousseff mean? Well, she called him a, a great Latin American, and she also uh, declared three days of national mourning in Brazil, as did uh, uh, Rafael Correa in Ecuador, who's another uh, leftist president who came to power in the wake of uh, the Chavez revolution in Venezuela. I think Dilma was referring to Chavez's overall influence for uh, leftist politicians and populists in Latin America. You have to remember, Marco, before Chavez came along, Almost all the governments all across Latin America were fairly conservative-leaning, pro-American. Uh, they were pro-free trade agreements. Um, it, that was sort of the way it was. Uh, but there was still a lot of inequality, huge gaps between uh, rich and poor in the region. And when Chavez came along by winning that first election back in 1998, he showed that you could do things a different way. I mean, Venezuela under Chavez embraced the Cuban model of confronting capitalism in the U.S., while Brazil went another direction. Can you compare the two approaches? Uh, sure. The Chavez style is a lot more autocratic and based around the Chavez personality. Chavez was dealing with a lot of oil wealth, so he had a lot of money to spend on anti-poverty programs. In Brazil, it's quite a lot different. It's a much more moderate left in Brazil 
Dilma Rousseff's predecessor, Lula, started it all off back in 2002. Mm. And they were a lot more akin to following the sort of normal normal rules of democracy, the checks and balances on power. And it's turned out pretty well for Brazil. And because of that, a lot of the more left-leaning governments across Latin America right now are sort of leaning more towards the Lula model than the Chavez model. So are there any countries in Latin America where Hugo Chavez was kind of successful in exporting his approach? Daniel Ortega is back in power in Nicaragua. And uh, He's doing a sort of following the same approach, uh, not friendly with the United States, trying to forge new allies. But the countries that uh, really seemed to pay off from Venezuela and its oil wealth was Cuba and, and a number of the Caribbean islands. In the case of Cuba, all that, you know, Venezuela basically replaced uh, the Soviet Union as, as Cuba's lifeboat. They provided Cuba with 3 to $4 billion per year in subsidized oil, which was a huge part of that country's uh, GDP. Haiti was also a huge benefactor of subsidized oil from Venezuela. And so a lot of these countries are concerned that going forward without Chavez, if his vice president, Nicolas Maduro, takes over and wins the, the upcoming election that they're supposed to hold within 30 days, if Maduro wins or if the opposition wins in Venezuela, there's a chance that the new government might not be so concerned about keeping all these oil arrangements going because Venezuela has a lot of economic problems to deal with at home. Reporter John Otis covered Hugo Chavez for the past 15 years. John, thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Marco. For more of our ongoing coverage of Venezuela following the death of Hugo Chavez, including my recent interview with author Rory Carroll about Chavez's life and 14 years in power, just go to theworld.org. If you're a long-distance runner, the name Wesley Career may be familiar to you. Last year, he won the Boston Marathon, and now he's first across another finish line. He's just been elected to the Kenyan parliament. Career ran, figuratively speaking in this case, as an independent candidate and won in his home district of Cherangani. That's in Kenya's Rift Valley province. Wesley Career joins us now on the line from Eldoret, Kenya. First of all, Wesley, congratulations on your victory. Thank you. Thank you. Why did you decide to run in this election? I think the one reason that I decided to run in this election is to provide good leadership to our people in Kenya that we have been lacking for a long time. I went to America and going to America provided me an opportunity to be able to, to learn some good leadership and I wanted to bring it home and provide that. And why did you decide to run as an independent candidate? The two main parties didn't interest you? Uh, I really wanted to serve the people of my area. I come from a very cosmopolitan area with a lot of tribes. And I wanted to represent all the tribes. Uh, sometimes in Kenya, we have a problem with party politics that has polarized our country. And I wanted to get away from that and get a full representation of all the tribes that I represent in Cherangani. Now, Cherangani is in the, the Rift Valley, as I said earlier. It's an area that was plagued by post-election violence in the previous elections in 2007. What's it been like this time? It's been really peaceful. It's been really peaceful. Uh, I'm so thankful, and I would like to take this opportunity to thank the Kenyans for their maturity. I think uh, we have matured enough. Uh, they maintain peace and uh, patience, and it's been very, very, very calm and peaceful. What is the first big problem you want to tackle? We have a lot of problems with availability of water. Women have to walk long distance to get water, and the water they get are not clean water, so we have a problem with uh, typhoid and all that. So that's a big issue that I have to really uh, focus on. And also the issue of school fees. 
tuition for high school here in Kenya uh, is a big problem. People can't afford to take their kids to school anymore because the school fees has increased dramatically in the last five years. So those are the two main issues that I want to really focus on in the next couple of years to be able to uh, tackle and help people go to school because without education, there's no development and also provide water so that women cannot uh, stop going so far away uh, to get water. You run a children's charity too, uh, Wesley, known as the Kenya Kids Foundation. What's that about? Kenya Kids Foundation uh, provide education to uh, poor families. And I think that's where I got the sense. Working with the poor kids to go to school uh, and working with the Kenyans about uh, education, that's when now I realize how difficult it is for Kenyans to go to school anymore because of high, uh, high increase in the education school fees. So we provide education to orphans and poor kids by paying their school fees and also we build a hospital in my area and we just bought an ambulance to be able to provide uh, ambulance service to the people mm-hmm. and also we help with farming subsidies. So Wesley, you ran in the Kenyan parliamentary election, you won, and you're still running and training for next month's Boston Marathon. Do you ever sleep? Oh, it's been hard recently, <laughs> uh, campaigning, running, and uh, trying to get some sleep and serving the people. So I try to sleep a couple of hours. I wake up early in the morning to go running. But now that the campaign is done, I think for the next one month remaining before the Boston Marathon, I'm going to squarely focus on uh, training for the Boston Marathon. And I imagine the days leading up to the election, you were running and campaigning at the same time. I continue running. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't stop running. So even the morning of the election, I ran uh, with my voting card. I went and fought it while training. And then I went for my long run after that. Stopping, <laughs> I stopped at a couple of polling stations to check how it was going. But uh, I did that while I was running. Well, Wesley, great to speak with you. Uh, best of luck as a politician and best of luck next month in the Boston Marathon. Thank you so much, and God bless you, and God bless Kenya. Still to come, Syrians seek shelter in a cave that's also where their kids attend school on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Here's a problem facing many churches, both here in the U.S. and around the globe. Dwindling financial resources are making it harder to meet the soaring costs of maintaining the physical structures of the church. In Europe, there tends to be an additional complication. Often the churches are historic or built on a grand scale to attract the faithful. In other words, the buildings themselves are part of Europe's cultural heritage. So what is the best way for increasingly secular societies to care for all those soaring spires, vaulted ceilings, and flying buttresses? Reporter Kavita Pillay has a few suggestions. There's no official count of churches in Europe, though it's safe to say the number would be overwhelming. It's also increasingly overwhelming to take care of them. For years, church attendance has been dropping, and as Europe's economic crisis continues, a growing number of Europe's churches risk being closed and sold off. So, how to get non-churchgoers back in the empty pews? One solution is to make churches more fun. They can be um, art exhibitions or even concerts that aren't religious, or they can be uh, a lot more sort of um, high-profile 
Lena Same is with the Brussels-based Future for Religious Heritage, a new Europe-wide secular network that wants to protect sacred spaces and make them more useful. There's an example in the UK where they've installed a, a circus school uh, because they needed the height of the building. But the building is still consecrated, so it can still be used for religious functions. The practice of opening churches to secular activities of all sorts is called extended use. Same says that the goal is to make churches integral to community life once again, so that people will want to protect them for the future. There's a lot of ways to do this, and they go beyond nursery schools and AA meetings. Imagine a pub or a Starbucks at your local house of worship, or, for instance, Nissan debuting a new car at a church. But secular use of sacred spaces makes some people hot under the clerical collar. Some people of faith might say, well, the building is sacred, therefore there are things you shouldn't do in it. Reverend Ruth Dowson understands the feelings of the faithful, but she sees things a little differently. Dowson is with the UK Centre for Events Management and has studied the impact of extended use. She sees it as a major opportunity for churches to develop deeper relationships within a community. The question is, how do you develop those relationships in one hour on a Sunday? And for me, part of the extended use of churches is enabling and facilitating the development of those relationships throughout the week. The extended use movement is growing. Last November in Venice, the Future for Religious Heritage got proponents together to talk. Dowson presented her research on extended use at the conference. The results, she says, are promising. What I actually see is I, I see attendance increasing, which, which may sound strange. The kinds of churches that are using events are bringing people into the church from outside and they're opening the doors and saying, we are welcome. In other words, it may take a little human intervention to protect the divine. For The World, I'm Kavita Pillay. One sound you probably associate with churches is the pipe organ. But in Chile, that's rare today. Organ playing's fallen out of favor there in the decades since Vatican II. That's when the Catholic Church said, among other things, that it was okay to use a guitar in the service. But there are still those who keep the flame alive. Here's the world's Alex Galifant. In a part of Santiago that's filled with auto repair shops, this is the only residential street around. And this house... Miguel Castillo's house. It used to be a Catholic school owned by his great-grandmother. You walk through the heavy gate into the hall, past the neat kitchen, the living room filled with plants, along a narrow corridor, and then out into a back room, into the private world of 76-year-old Miguel Castillo Didier. This place is incredible. Okay, <laughs> There's a little of everything, he says. A harmonium, an organ, a clavichord, a harpsichord, and a piano. Shelves sag with manuscripts and reference books. There are busts of Wagner and Beethoven. Castillo hasn't always lived here, of course, but he needs the space. His old house was too small, he says. The organ pipes didn't fit inside. Miguel Castillo teaches Greek at the University of Chile. He's one of the most respected translators of Greek poetry in the world. Years ago, he translated an opus by Nikos Kazantzakis, a modern sequel to The Odyssey. But he wasn't paid in money. 
The poet's widow gave him this organ instead, built to Castillo's specifications. He wanted it to play Bach. Castillo grew up with music. He and his 13 brothers and sisters all played instruments. Every Sunday, they'd go to church, and he'd listen to the harmonium. Every day, he gets up at 5 and plays for an hour from 5.30 to 6.30. Every day, he puts on a suit and a black tie. Por mi papá, por mi mamá, y por todos los mártires de Chile. And for all the martyrs of Chile. He means those who died under the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet, who seized power in 1973. Castillo's family was conservative, but he was a leftist. He was fired from his university post. His wife shared his views. In 1976, she was arrested by Pinochet's men and tortured. She survived. In 1978, Castillo took his family into exile to Venezuela. He says when he was forced into exile, he learned to love the Odyssey even more. They lived in Venezuela for 13 years. Miguel held his family together with Greek and with music. He played the organ at a Lutheran church in Caracas. He taught piano, and he gave language lessons. Miguel Castillo has known suffering and oppression. Like all Chileans of a certain age, he has known what it means to be silenced. But perhaps his inner life has always been unbounded. Poetry, ideas, music, these cannot be contained. Miguel Castillo says the organ envelops him in emotion. It gives him a sense of eternity. The sound goes up and goes on forever. For the world, I'm Alex Galafent, Santiago, Chile. You can see Miguel Castillo at his many keyboards. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. Forget clues on land now. We're going deep underwater today. We want you to name a Southeast Asian country, one that's laced with unexploded bombs from decades of war. This country's already dug up tens of thousands of tons of buried landmines, but there are still more, and they continue to kill. Now, this country is planning to go after unexploded ordnance sunk deep in the Mekong River. But first it has to train a team of salvage divers, and some of the recruits don't swim all that well. We'll name the country and find out how the training's going later in the show. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, Syrians go to extraordinary lengths to school their children in the middle of a civil war. And later, a Brazilian rock band called Nancy changes its name to Sexify, or is it Sexy Fee? Fee, which is basically a kind of a slang. Yay, Fee. So it's sort of a bit like, hey man, you're sexy. Consider myself corrected. PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. 
Medtronic Global Heroes. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash global heroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. There are several ways to measure the toll that serious civil war is taking on the country. The United Nations offers these grim statistics, 70,000 dead since the conflict began in 2011, and one million people forced to flee their homes. More than 7,000 Syrian refugees are thought to be leaving the country daily. Half are children under the age of 11. As for the children still inside Syria, the violence is a constant deadly threat. Some schools remain open in the country, if you can imagine that, but many kids just don't go. That's according to a study put out this week by the U.N. Children's Agency, UNICEF. Iman Moruko works for UNICEF in Syria. So, Iman, the statistics that UNICEF found about the education system are pretty frightening. But what stood out for me the most was that in Aleppo, school attendance rate has dropped to 6%. That's low, but given what I'm reading about the country, it seems surprising to me that any kids are going to school at all. Can you give us a picture of what schooling is like now in Syria? About one-fifth of the country's schools are now either damaged and destroyed or being used as, uh, as shelters. But children definitely are still going to school. And families that I've spoken to, they all mention how important it is to make sure that children still continue some kind of education. Are you hearing any uh, anecdotes about families that are cooperating together and kind of doing a, a form of homeschooling? My colleague who was in the field in Tartus recently, he met families displaced by the conflict who now live in a cave because they have nowhere else to stay. And he met with a 23-year-old woman who uh, had to drop out of university herself because of displacement. She lives in this cave with her own children and uh, with children of other families. She teaches those children and she gives them lessons. So they're living in the cave. They're going to school in this cave. Exactly, exactly. They conduct the lessons inside the cave. I also have another colleague, and he visited one of the shelters for displaced families, and he actually met with children who themselves uh, started uh, a classroom in the shelter where they live. And what they do is invite other children to come to their room so that they can study together. Did you meet any school children themselves, and what are they telling you? I was in uh, homes recently, and I visited informal remedial classes. In one of those remedial classes, I met an 11-year-old girl who told me that she had to leave school for a full school year when in her neighborhood uh, the fighting got so bad and her neighborhood school closed. But her parents continued to teach her, and when she was able to go back to school, She didn't have to skip a a school year. So this shows the incredible effort that is being uh, done at the household level. So are there places where it seems totally fine to go to school? So where there is heavy fighting, obviously, the education system and children are paying a terrible price. While in other places, uh, schools are running more uh, normally, however, because of the large influx of displaced population, in areas that are relatively more peaceful. This puts a lot of pressure on the schools. So many schools are running in two or three shifts per day. So this means that children who are still able to go to school receive less hours of schooling. So all this definitely adds up, and children can't really afford 
to lose any more time. I've got to say, despite the worst possible circumstances, some of your stories show the, the determination of kids to have a normal education everywhere. Iman Maruka, representative for UNICEF in Syria, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Marco. It's been slow going in Guantanamo for the trial of alleged 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and four other supposed co-conspirators. The most recent hearings under the government's military commission system were last month. The next hearings are not until April. Wall Street correspondent Jess Braven has followed the military commission story closely. In his new book, The Terror Courts, Braven offers a riveting and at times scathing account of the formation of the commissions and how they've been troubled from the beginning by questions of legitimacy and detainee abuse. Braven says the idea of establishing the commissions had its origins in the theories of presidential power advanced by John Yoo, the same Bush administration lawyer who wrote the famous torture memos. He had a theory of American government that might be surprising to to some listeners. It was not that uh, the U.S. system of government was a dramatic break uh, from that of the the, the British monarchy. It was more that it was a continuation of the same principles except where expressly modified by the Constitution. And thus all the powers of the British king uh, would then be held by the president except as limited. You know, it wasn't hereditary. Uh, You know, there were other other kinds of, of restrictions. And under that kind of analysis, the president's power in his view was nearly unlimited and military commissions uh, as he envisioned them and other people working with him would be really a reflection of presidential power, not an independent way to assess guilt uh, or innocence. And in fact, as he envisioned them uh, and others uh, who who worked on the project with him at that stage, uh, there would be no appeal to any court outside the executive branch. There would be no appeal to any court, period. And the president himself would be the final uh, judge of uh, guilt or innocence and decide whether uh, people who were convicted uh, would live or die. Now, early on uh, with the commissions, career military lawyers clashed with uh, Bush administration legal experts over how to run the commissions. What ultimately happened? Well, this was a tremendous clash, and it was a clash of both ideas and really of culture. The the U.S. military has a law book called the Uniform Code of Military Justice that was adopted after World War II. Mm. And this book and other changes in military law after World War II went a long way to changing, as they saw it, the reputation of military law from being rough justice, if you will, something that was pretty much looked down on by, by other aspects of the, of the legal profession, to something they were very proud of. And to them, the idea of something that looked like it could be just summary trials was a huge uh, affront to what they thought uh, they had signed up to do. And they were very concerned about the reputation of military justice being damaged uh, if it became uh, viewed widely as just a, a kangaroo court for, uh, for enemies who were presumed guilty in the first place. So the trial balloon, if we could say, of the military commissions was the case of uh, Salim Hamdan that was uh, Osama bin Laden's driver. Um, But it didn't go quite as uh, the Bush administration planned. How did Donald Rumsfeld, in his own words, become the first secretary of defense to lose a case to a terrorist? Yes, that's a fascinating thing. I mean, he was the, uh, 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 the technically the defendant when lawyers representing Hamdan uh, went to federal court and said, you can't try uh, our client uh, in this military commission because the president lacks the constitutional authority to create it. This is an illegal 
uh, court, basically, and, and you, you can't have a trial here. And uh, the Hamdan's people, the lawyers, they won in the trial court that was reversed on the appeals court, and then it went to the Supreme Court in 2006. And the Supreme Court, by a 5-3 vote, uh, ruled for Hamdan. Do you think people like Hamdan would have received harsher punishment in, in a federal court? The sentences have certainly not been harsher than what one has seen in, in corresponding cases in, in the civilian courts. For instance, Hamdan was acquitted by a jury of six military officers of this most serious count, conspiracy in 9-11. Uh, and he was convicted of, a, of the lesser charge, which was called uh, material support for terrorism. The government prosecutor at Guantanamo in 2008, and this was a fascinating thing to, to see. I watched it uh, you know, at the time in the courtroom. The prosecutor asked for 30 years to life mm. to make sure that no one in the world would ever think of providing material support to terrorism again through uh, imposing such a harsh sentence. The military jury deliberated for less than two hours and came back with a sentence of five and a half months plus time served, Incredible. which was a, a stunning result. Hamdan was uh, – no one could really believe it at first. It's uh, months, years, what? What are they talking about? But mm. uh, he was then uh, repatriated in January 2009. And Hamdan, of course, was the driver for Osama bin Laden. That's, uh, that's, that's really why he was selected because right. he, he was as close as we had to Osama bin Laden uh, at the time. Uh, let me ask you one final question, uh, Jess. It's something I've often wondered about. I mean, given the extraordinary nature of the 9-11 attacks, both political and criminal, you know, non-state players attacking U.S. national interests and murdering 3,000 citizens, murdering 3,000 people in the process, why should there not be extraordinary methods to try the act? Well, the question really is, you know, what is the uh, – are, are extraordinary methods – uh, a goal in and of themselves. And actually, the answer is, yes, they are with military commissions. And uh, the, the best example is the 9-11 trial itself. For one, you know, we're now in the third effort to begin a prosecution of, of uh, five men who are accused of orchestrating those attacks. Uh, in 2008, I saw them try to plead guilty. They are not denying their culpability. In fact, these are fanatics who are quite proud of it and claim responsibility for all kinds of attacks on the United States. They're not claiming a mistaken identity or or some or, or that they were framed or anything like that. And it is very difficult to believe that uh, should they had they tried to plead guilty in a federal court in. Uh, in New York or anywhere, uh, that plea would not have been accepted. Uh, so it's not that the existing trial systems were, you know, would not be able to convict people like this. It's actually the other way around. As Senator Lindsey Graham, who's one of the big advocates of military commissions, told me, you know, for for the book, if you didn't put Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, one of the 9/11 defendants, into a military commission. Well, why put anyone in a military commission? Uh, it, it, in other words, rather than the commissions being constructed to uh, try these uh, notorious uh, uh, diabolical figures and being the only type of, of, of structure that can hold them, it's really the other way around that the government needs these uh, diabolical figures in the dock in order to justify the perpetuation of this military commission experiment, which is such a, a strong deviation from American justice uh, standards uh, over the prior two centuries. Jess Braven, Supreme Court correspondent for The Wall Street Journal and author of The Terror Courts, Rough Justice at Guantanamo Bay. Jess, thanks very much. Thank you, Marco.
In Cambodia, landmines left over from wars long past still kill and maim more than 100 people a year. Deminers have cleared thousands of acres of contaminated land, but now Cambodia wants to do this underwater with some funding from the U.S. government. Reporter Erwin Loy has a story from Phnom Penh. By a glimmering pool on top of a new condo tower, three dozen men are crouched doing push-ups. They're in training. They want to become members of the country's first team specializing in recovering underwater UXO or unexploded ordnance. But first, they have to prove they can swim. Like most of the recruits here, Chan Song never had a swimming lesson. That didn't stop him from signing up. I've swum before on the river. Nobody taught us how to swim. We taught each other. At 45, Chan Song is one of the oldest recruits. He's already used to removing deadly explosives from the ground. For him, this work is personal. He laid landmines himself when he was a soldier. When I clear the landmines, I'm pretty scared. But I feel so guilty. I feel like I have to take the landmines out. If I don't do it, maybe they'll hurt my own relatives. In the early 1970s, the U.S.-backed government of the day was fighting a losing battle against Khmer Rouge rebels. To resupply troops on the front line, authorities sent ships with ammunition up the Mekong River. So these boats would be, you know, they'd be carrying their cargo of ordnance to resupply some forward fighting force, and they'd be fired upon by the enemy and sunk. And so there they sit at the bottom of the river. Well, people start finding this stuff now. That's Alan Tan of the U.S.-based Golden West Humanitarian Foundation. The group researches new ways to clear landmines and other UXO. He says there are likely thousands of tons of sunken munitions in Cambodian waterways, and they've become prime targets for scrap sellers who dig them up for the metal. Two weeks later, the recruits are on a small dive boat in the ocean, about 12 miles off Cambodia's coast. Fewer than half have made it this far. Robert Rice is an instructor here. He looks on as two recruits jump into the bright blue water. The first lesson, how to navigate as a team using a compass. But there's some confusion underwater. A trainer following the pair underwater reports back. Both almost cracked the surface, then went back down, and there was a bit of pushing and shoving about which, where they were going to go. There was no real discussion. So they're not really talking to each other. The divers resurface. Through a translator, Rice quizzes them about what went wrong. They're both confused about the direction of the compass. Okay, good. But it was Diver 1's job, so you were trying to help, but it's Diver 1's job. So if Diver 1 says, I think we should go this way, you can... But if Diver 1 says, we're going this way, you follow Diver 1. It's a steep learning curve for these recruits. Underwater munitions recovery is an inherently risky operation. The Mekong River is lined with silt and mud. That could mean almost pitch-black diving conditions in a fast-flowing river. Rice knows the challenges the recruits will face. He's a former U.S. Navy EOD diver. That stands for Explosive Ordnance Disposal. Everything has to be able to be done by touch, including awareness of where they are in the water column, you know, how deep they are, awareness of where their buddy is in the complete blackness. That'll be a big challenge. And the fact that the water's moving is another big challenge. Then you've got to go find the ordnance. And blind, you have to decide, is it safe to move? Is it ordnance? What kind of ordnance it is? 
got one set left and I got my dog soups and I'll soup them. So Later in the day, the recruits take a short break. Chan Song, the D miner who felt a personal obligation to remove landmines, didn't make the cut. But another former soldier, Tri Kun, did. He says he's getting the hang of diving. At first, it seemed completely more dangerous working in the water compared with demining on land. But it's getting better since training started. I think it will be easier than on land. But this is just the beginning. Months of training still lie ahead. If all goes well and additional U.S. funding comes through, officials here hope to have a qualified team of underwater UXO specialists within a couple of years. For The World, I'm Erwin Loy off the coast of Cambodia. And Cambodia is the answer to the quiz today. Get your scuba gear on. Erwin sent us a slideshow from the Cambodian Mine Action Center. Check out the underwater shots at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Think you know Brazilian music with its smooth sway of sand, sun, and bikinis? Well, check out Sexify. This track is off Sexy Fuzz debut CD, Nunca Te Vi De Boa. The signature Brazilian smooth remains in the voice of lead singer Camila Zamuth, but Sexy Fi has a definite indie rock edge, as you can tell. Zamuth says, like their music, even their name isn't easy to pin down. Sexy, I think it was kind of a joke, but the Fi is actually pronounced in Portuguese fi, which is basically a kind of a slang Yay, fee. So it's sort of a bit like, hey, man, you're sexy. But that's also a good explanation. I think what, what I like about the name is that it's sort of open to lots of um, interpretations. So you would say, like, wow, that party last night was uh, yay, fee. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, right. So originally your band was called Nancy to make things even yeah. more confusing. How did Nancy exactly. become sexy fee? Well, basically, we couldn't Google ourselves. <laughs> it was a nightmare. That's basically, That's it was reason. horrifying. And it, re- and it really was as simple as that. And I think we also changed as a band. There's only two people who are left from Nancy, myself and Praxis, who's the lead guitar. We thought it was a great time to sort of have a decent name where people would actually find us on Google and all that kind of. Mm. So <laughs> that was basically it. The music on this album spans a lot of genres. It's been described as Brazilian art rock and even tropical Mm -hmm. chic. You live in Sao Paulo, which is kind of this crazy Blade Runner city in the tropics. Right. Um, Is that really the source of the sound, Sao Paulo? The music is kind of a mixture of the interests of everyone in the band. Individually, we enjoy all sorts of different sounds. For instance, I really love jazz, but we also love rock and we also love alternative sounds and world music. Plus, also lyrically, I think Brasilia is a huge influence because we formed in Brasilia, which is a modernist capital. Mm. I lived there because I'm the daughter of a diplomat as well, so I lived abroad all my life. And so we're kind of global and local at the same time. That makes Sexy Fee quite unique because the world yeah. thinks of Brazil as Rio and then maybe exactly. Sao Paulo. Nobody thinks exactly. of the capital Brasilia, which is, no. as you said, this kind of manufactured modernist city. It is. The core of the city, I think, has about two million people. And it's sort of a small town. And it's an administrative town. You know, it's the government. It has a very unique identity. We're a Brazilian band because we're all Brazilians. But what stands us out, and I think sometimes maybe why they don't understand us in Brazil at times is that because we're not 100% easy to understand, because Brasilia is not easy to understand. Right. Half the songs on the CD are in English. How did that come about? That came about, I think, mostly because of my influence. I've been speaking English forever, and I'm bilingual. 
Um, is it easier to write songs for you in English than in Portuguese? It is. For me personally, it is. In written form, I'm more fluent in English than I am in Portuguese. And in my head, some songs are in English, make sense in English lyrically, and others in Portuguese. It's as simple as that for me sometimes. Speaking of English, there is an unexpected track in English on your CD called Diogo's Lament. It's uh, yes. kind of a tr- diatribe of a street vendor selling flip-flops, and I'm afraid we're going to yeah. have to bleep out a few words in it, but we'll have a listen sure. real quick. Okay. What is this, like the fourth time in a week you're coming to buy flip-flops, man? You're wearing sneakers, man. If you like flip-flops that much, you'll be f-ing using them right now, man. I know what you want, man. I know you want some of that Merla sun. That is the real sh- Straight from the Bolinha sector, man. It's the Brazilian sensation of the season. So, Camila, how did that track make it onto your CD? Because it does kind of like fly in out of nowhere. Diogo, who is our bass player, he lived in the States, in the Boston area. I'm not sure where exactly. What we recorded, he would say during rehearsals, and we all would think it was hilarious. And we thought, let's just put it in because it was something also specific to Brasilia, these sort of vendors who are selling Merla and they're selling drugs, but they're also selling flip-flops. And so it's, um, it was something that we decided just to sort of give it a bit more flavor, you know, more of a Brasilia flavor. Yeah, but he brings in kind of a north of the border flavor to it. Exactly. There's also that. So, you know, it's a, like you said, and like, you know, and like I've been saying, we're not 100% easy to understand at first. Yeah. I want to just take a quick listen to the song Togetherness uh, and then talk about that. Okay. Oh, togetherness, togetherness can fall apart. Togetherness can self-destruct and break your own. Togetherness, togetherness can fall apart. So what you've done here is your voice is layered over a cappella to create a harmony uh, that kind of contradicts the verses of a two-line song. What inspired this? It's kind of simple and complex at the same time. Right. I actually wrote that, and this is a this is an absolutely true story, and it sounds incredibly cliche, but it's true. I wrote that in the shower, <laughs> and I was literally taking a shower, and I started humming that. And then I said, ooh, this be fun with more than one voice. And so I got my, my MacBook and I... I hope you got out of the shower first. I did get out of the shower first. I know that that was an important detail to have mentioned chronologically. So I got out of the shower first and then I got my MacBook and um, I clicked on GarageBand and then I started playing with the voices. That's sort of how I came out, you know. Camilla, it sounds like you, you and Sexy Fee are having a lot of fun. Are you yeah. having fun in a Brazilian context, or are you looking beyond Brazil? Or do you want to come to the States and perform? I mean, do you we think an wanna, album that is yeah. half English, half Portuguese can make it here? Well, I hope it can, because it is something that we're interested in. And I hope it works, because I think we have something very unique to say about Brazilian music. We're not just that kind of bossa nova, traditional music that I think the world knows. We're part of a generation that grew up with international music, English and American pop and American rock and all of that. They're just as influential to us than our own Brazilian music, than Caetano Veloso Mm. and all the other ones. Well, I hope it works too, Camila. Thank you. Camila Zamoth with the band from Brazil, Sexy Fee. Great to speak with you. Thank you so much. Great to speak to you too.
close out the show today, I want to bring the world's Ritu Chatterjee into the studio, who's just gotten back from a trip to India. We'll be airing one of your stories tomorrow from that trip, Ritu, and you're reporting on violence against women and shifting gender roles. Tell us a bit about tomorrow's story. To put it briefly, Marco, it's about a little girl. She's 12 years old and lives in a remote, culturally conservative part of India. And in the story, I explore how she's figuring out who she is, what she can and cannot do as a girl. And this is at a time when gender roles in the country are shifting. And she's part of the first generation of girls in her village to get an education and have aspirations of economic independence. But traditions are still important where she lives. And the story is about how this one girl is trying to navigate her way through these opposing forces of tradition and new opportunities. Mm, Young women in India looking to the future tomorrow on the program. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. By the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International